Section 86 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3, by George W. M. Reynolds. Chapter 82. The Forged Check. Oh, what a strange and at the same time what a wondrous world is this in which we live, and how marvelous is human progress. The utmost attainments effected by the wisdom of our ancestors were but ignorance and short-sightedness compared with the knowledge of the present day. Antiquity had its grand intellects and its sublime geniuses, but it furnished not the same abundance of materials to act upon as is afforded by the discoveries and likewise by the spirit of this age. But are we proportionately happier on this account than were our forefathers? Is the working man, for instance, more prosperous, more comfortable, more enviable as to his condition, than the aboriginal Briton who lived in a cave or the hollow of a tree, and who painted his body to protect it against the cold? With all our prosperity, with all the grandeur, the glitter, and the refinement of our civilization, with all our moralizing institutions and our love of social order and mental improvement, we yet find the national heart devoured, tortured, and preyed upon by that undying serpent, pauperism. Yes, the millions are not so happy, so prosperous, or so comfortable as they ought to be, for they are compelled to gnaw the terrors of civilization's field while the proud and heartless oligarchy self-appoint the corn. Proud and heartless indeed are the rulers and the mighty ones of this land, and if the millions remain passive and patient, that pride and that heartlessness will grow, the one more despotic and the other more selfish. It was but a few days ago that we marked two distinct articles in the morning newspapers which formed a contrast fearfully significant in its evidence of the pride and the heartlessness which we abominate on the one hand, and of the distress and suffering which we so deeply deplore on the other. One of these articles consisted of but four lines, the other occupied nearly two columns. The first stated as laconically as possible that bread had risen to thirteen pence the quartern loaf and recorded a rapidly disposed of regret that provisions should be so dear on account of the poor. The second gave a labored, fulsome, and tedious wire-drawn narrative of Her Majesty's State Ball. Thus the misery endured by millions in consequence of dearness and scarcity is a trivial matter, deserving only of four lines, whereas the trumpery nonsense and childish tomfoolery of a royal dance are deemed of sufficient importance to merit nearly two columns. Oh! Instead of giving balls and splendid entertainments at such a time, if the sovereign of this land were to say to the people, Ye are starving, and it makes my heart bleed to think that from your very vitals are wrung the hundreds of thousands of pounds which are wasted by myself and the other members of the royal family on our frivolities, our whims, our caprices, and our wanton extravagances. Therefore will I give ye back one half of the enormous income which I have hitherto enjoyed, in the full confidence that my example will be imitated by many others who prey upon you. Did the sovereign thus speak to the nation, the nation would be justly proud of its sovereign, and yet this sovereign would only be performing a duty dictated by humanity and common justice. What would be thought of the father of a family who feasted on turtle and venison accompanied by generous wines every day, while his children were thrust into the cold, humid cellar to devour a mouldy crust and drink water? Yet the sovereign delights in the attribute of a general and comprehensive paternal solicitude in the welfare of the people, 
but it is an attribute which exists only in the imaginations of groveling courtiers or lickspittle historians. Royalty and aristocracy are intensely, necessarily, and thoroughly selfish, and as for any anxiety on behalf of the toiling and suffering millions, the idea is absurd. The notion is a mere delusion. The assertion that such a feeling exists is a lie, a monstrous, wicked, atrocious lie. There is more of the milk of human kindness in a single cottage than in all the palaces of Europe taking together. There is more true philanthropy in one poor man's hovel than in a thousand mansions of the great and wealthy in the fashionable quarters of London. Oh, if the father or the mother can dance and be glad while the children are famishing, the sooner all ties are severed between such worthless parents and such an oppressed and outraged offspring, the better. Nero danced and sang on the summit of a tower at the spectacle presented to his eyes by burning Rome, and festivity and rejoicing reign in our English palaces, at a moment when scarcity menaces the land with famine and its invariable attendant, pestilence. People of England, ye now understand how much sympathy ye may expect on the part of those who derive all their wealth from the sweat of your brow. People of Ireland, ye now comprehend how much pity your starving condition excites on the part of your rulers. People of Scotland, ye now perceive how worthy the great ones of the realm are of your adulation. But it is sickening as it is sorrowful to dwell on this subject. Some of our readers may perhaps ask us wherefore we broach it at all. We will reply by means of a few questions. Is not every individual member of a society interested in the welfare of that society? Or ought he not at least to be so? Is he not justified in denouncing the errors or the downright turpitude of the magistrates whom that society has chosen to govern it, and who derive their power only from its goodwill and pleasure? Or is it not indeed his duty to proclaim those errors and that turpitude? Should not this duty be performed, even if it be unpleasant, and can we ever hope to ameliorate our condition, unless we expose the abuses which oppress, degrade, and demoralize us? Oh! Let no one rashly and in a random manner say that he cares nothing about politics. Such an assertion denotes a willful disregard not only of his neighbor's interests, but also of his own. Were all men to entertain such an indifference, the people would be the veriest slaves that an unrestrained despotism and an unwatched tyranny could render them. It is as necessary for the industrious classes to protect their rights and privileges by zealously guarding them, as to adopt precautions to save their houses from fire. One word more. It is a common saying, and as absurd as it is common. Oh, women have no right to meddle in politics. Women, on the contrary, have as much right as the lords of the creation to exhibit an interest in the systems and institutions by which they are governed. For the sake of their children, as well as for their own, they should assert and exercise that right. It is a lamentable delusion to suppose that the intellect of women is not powerful, nor comprehensive enough to embrace such consideration. The intellect of women is naturally as strong as that of man, but it has less chances and less opportunities of developing its capacity. The masculine study of politics would aid the intellect of woman in putting forth its strength, and we hope that the day is gone by when the female sex are to be limited to the occupations of the drawing-room, the nursery, or the kitchen. We do not wish to see women become soldiers or sailors, nor to work at severe employment, but we are anxious to behold them thinkers as well as readers, utilitarians as well as domestic economists. 
and we know of no greater benefit that could be conferred on society in general than that which might be derived from the influence of the well-developed intellect of woman her sight is naturally better poised than that of man far-seeing and quick-sighted is she a readiness at devising and combining plans to meet emergencies is intuitive with her her judgment is correct her taste good and she profits by experience far more usefully than does man is it not absurd then is it not unjust and is it not unwise to deny to woman the right of exercising her proper influence in that society of which she is the ornament and the delight alas that there should be such exceptions to the general rule of female excellence as martha slingsby a woman whose principles were thoroughly corrupt whose licentious passions were of the most devouring insatiable kind and whose talent for wicked combinations and evil plottings was unfortunately so great let us return to this hypocritical and abandoned creature and follow her in the vile scheme which now occupies all her attention having breakfasted at an early hour she seated herself at her desk when she drew forth a packet of letters received by her at various times from sir henry courtenay and the signatures of which now became the objects of her special study the art of counterfeiting the late baronet's autograph was practised by her for nearly half an hour for though she was already tolerably confident of her ability to forge his signature most successfully as she had assured mr torrens she nevertheless deemed it prudent to render the imitation as perfect as possible at last the atrocious deed was accomplished to her complete satisfaction and a cheque for two thousand pounds lay drawn in a thoroughly business-like manner upon her desk she was bold and courageous in the execution of plots and the carrying out of deep schemes but this dark and dangerous crime which she had perpetrated caused her to shudder from head to foot hitherto all her wickedness had been of a nature calculated only if detected to involve her in disgrace and not in peril to ruin her character but not place her life in jeopardy now she had taken a step a bold and desperate step which at once set her on the high road that conducts all those who are found treading its pathway to the foot of the scaffold yes she shrank back and she trembled violently as she rose from the desk whereon the forged check now lay and for a moment she was inclined to seize it to rend it into a thousand pieces and thus to dispel at once and in an instant the tremendous black cloud of stormy danger which she had drawn over her own head but no she had courage enough to be wicked and rash but she had not strength of mind sufficient to render her prudent she therefore decided on daring all risking everything by the presentation of the forged check having dressed herself in a style of unusual elegance she proceeded in a hackney coach to lombard street and alighted at the door of the banking-house on which the check was drawn saying to herself now for the aid of all my courage she entered the spacious establishment and advanced towards the counter one of the numerous clerks in attendance instantly received the check which she handed across to him and as it left her hand a chill struck to her heart, and she would at the moment have given worlds to recall it. Her composure was now only the effect of utter desperation, but so unruffled was her countenance that not alignment was so changed as to be calculated to engender suspicion. The clerk took the check to the nearest desk upon the counter, and after reading it with more than usual attention, as Mrs. Slingsby thought, he said, "'This is dated the day before yesterday, madam. Have you seen Sir Henry Courtenay since then?' i have not answered mrs slingsby wondering how she was able to speak in a tone so cold and collected i believe she added that he has gone out of town 
pardon the question madam observed the clerk but one of his servants was here last evening just before closing time to inquire if we had seen sir henry then after a few moments pause he said how will you have this immense was the relief suddenly experienced by the guilty woman she seemed as if drawn abruptly forth from the depths of an ocean in which she had been suffocating drowning the revulsion of feeling was so great that whereas she had been enabled to stand without support throughout the few minutes of frightful ordeal just passed she was now compelled to cling to the counter though the clerk observed not her emotion having specified the manner in which she desired the amount of the cheque to be paid her mrs slingsby received the produce of her crime and quitted the bank she was now so astounded at the complete success of her scheme although when able to reflect calmly upon it she had never once doubted the issue that she could scarcely believe in its realization her brain whirled her heart palpitated violently as she ascended the steps of the hackney coach and its motion as it rolled away from the door of the bank increased the excitement under which she was now laboring on her return to old burlington street she found mr torrens waiting for her it being nearly twelve o'clock the hour appointed for their visit to the solicitor the moment she entered the drawing-room mr torrens rose from his seat and advanced towards her his eyes fixed intently upon her countenance in fact mr torrens was deeply anxious to learn the result of the bold venture which mrs slingsby was that morning to make with him it was now a matter of pecuniary ruin or salvation and he had overcome so many difficulties already stifling his own scruples at taking an immodest woman for his wife and reducing his daughter to a belief in the necessity of his submitting to this matrimonial arrangement that he trembled lest some unforeseen accident should thwart him just at the moment when he appeared to be touching on the goal of success moreover he had that morning ere quitting home so contrived matters with john jeffreys as to induce this man to leave his service without delay and he had enjoyed the supreme satisfaction of seeing that dangerous person leave his house ere he himself had set out to keep his appointment with mrs slingsby thus everything had progressed in accordance with mr torrens views and wishes so far as the preliminaries to his change of condition were involved well my dear madam what tidings he eagerly demanded as he approached to meet mrs slingsby i have succeeded she said throwing herself into a chair but i would not for worlds undergo again the same dreadful alternations between acute suspense and thrilling joy cold tremor and feverish excitement and yet the transaction has given a charming glow of animation to your countenance observed mr torrens now for the first time inflamed by desire in respect to the amorous widow whom he was shortly to make his wife i have procured the license and-and rosamond what of her demanded mrs slingsby hastily she will receive you with a respectful welcome at torrens cottage was the answer by dint of reasoning with her i overcame all her scruples and rendered her pliant and ductile to our purposes all progresses well then said mrs slingsby let us now away to mr howard and to that gentleman's office did the pair proceed their business was soon explained to the attorney who manifested no surprise nor any particular emotion at the singularity of the transaction for mr howard was a perfect man of business ready to receive instructions without expressing any feelings at all calculated to annoy his clients and never indicating a curiosity to learn more than those clients might choose to confide to him i am to keep this sum of two thousand pounds until such time as mr torrens may claim it in the capacity of your husband he said as coolly and quietly as if he were receiving a deposit on the purchase of an estate exactly so answered mrs slingsby and to-morrow morning my dear sir added mr torrens with a smile i shall come to claim it 
good exclaimed mr howard locking up the bank notes and gold in his iron safe i give you joy mr torrens mrs slingsby i wish you all possible happiness thus speaking the attorney bowed his clients out of the office mr torrens escorted mrs slingsby back to old burlington street and then repaired as fast as his horse and gig would take him to his own dwelling to sit down to an early dinner and afterwards dress himself for the interesting ceremony of the evening but on his arrival at the cottage he learnt from the female servant who opened the door that his daughter rosamond had left home an hour previously left home ejaculated mr torrens but will she return he continued interrogatively did she not say that she would return she desired me to give you this note sir answered the domestic mr torrens tore open the letter placed in his hands and read the following impressive lines pardon me dearest father for the step which i am now taking but i cannot cannot support the idea of dwelling beneath the same roof with that lady who is soon to be my mother-in-law i know that i promised not to desert the paternal home that promise was given in sincerity though maddening reflections now render me incapable of keeping it you are well aware how dreadfully my feelings have been wounded how cruelly my heart has been lacerated during the last few hours and i have struggled against the violence of my grief i have endeavoured to subdue my anguish but the occurrences of last night the outrage attempted by that villain jeffreys the revelation of the terrible secret relative to sir henry courtenay oh my dear father a mind ten thousand times stronger than that of your unhappy daughter could not endure the weight of all this aggregate of misery therefore sooner that my presence should render my father's house unhappy i depart thence hoping to be followed by your blessing grieve not for me dear father heaven will protect me from time to time i shall write to you and should happier days arrive but of that alas i dare entertain no hope at present to you must i leave the painful task of accounting to my dearest dearest sister and her esteemed husband for my absence when you see them again farewell farewell my beloved father i scarcely know what i have written my brain is on fire my heart is ready to burst my eyes are dimmed with tears the servant watched the countenance of her master with evident interest and curiosity as he perused this note did miss rosamond appear much excited he asked in a tremulous tone and without raising his eyes from the letter which he held in his hand she was crying very much sir responded the servant and it made me quite sad to see her i attempted to comfort her but she only shook her head impatiently and then sobbed as if her heart would break i knew that she was going to leave because she had a small package in her hand and she did cry so dreadful when she told me to give you this note mr torrens turned aside and hastened to his chamber where he remained until half-past five o'clock he then descended to the parlour dressed for the nuptial ceremony to the servant's inquiry relative to the serving up of the dinner he replied that he had no appetite and immediately gave orders for the horse and gig to be got ready by a stable-boy who had been hastily hired in the morning to take the place of jeffreys until a more efficient substitute could be found the command was soon obeyed, and shortly before seven o'clock Mr. Torrens arrived in Old Burlington Street. The flight of his daughter from home had proved a more severe shock to him than the reader might imagine, considering the cold and heartless disposition of this man. It was not that he felt he should miss her society. No, he did not love her enough to harbor a regret of that nature. But her departure from the paternal dwelling had made him writhe beneath the maddening, the galling conviction that his independence was in a measure gone and that a stern necessity had compelled him to assent to link his fate with that of a woman so vile and abandoned that his own child fled at the idea of her approach 
Influenced by such feelings as these, it was no easy task for Mr. Torrens to assume a complacent demeanor suitable to the occasion of his nuptials. He nevertheless managed to conceal the emotions which wrung him so acutely, and played his part with tolerable satisfaction to Mrs. Slingsby, as she introduced him to Dr. Wagtail and the other guests, including a clergyman who were already assembled at her house. The ceremony was performed by the reverend gentleman just alluded to, Dr. Wagtail giving the bride away. A splendid banquet was then served up, and shortly after ten o'clock Mr. and Mrs. Torrens departed together for the cottage. End of section 86. Recording by Philip Gould.